0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Big Ideas. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we interview an author with a big idea, and we ask them what it's about, and we analyze it and test it and talk about it so that you can understand it as well. Today I'm happy to say on our inaugural podcast we have Alec Foge on the show, and we'll be talking about his Big Idea book, The Tinkerers, The Amateurs, DIYers, and Inventors Who Make America Great. So, Alec, kick it off for us by telling us what the big idea is.
1: Well, Marshall, thank you for having me uh, on your inaugural Big Ideas show. Um, The big idea behind my book, The Tinkerers, is that there's an American tinkering spirit that we often hear about, and the book tries to figure out whether this spirit is still alive, and if so, how... How vibrant is it? And if it, if it needs amplifying, what, what kinds of things can we do to, uh, encourage it and help it, uh, grow further? Um, I guess the, the provocative part of the idea behind the book is that I, I define uh, tinkering fairly specifically. And I say that in the book that tinkerers, uh, by my definition, are actually dilettantes. And I mean that in a positive way. Um, They're not specialists. And I think that in our current era, we've come to think of uh, people who invent things and innovate as uh, trained engineers or or people who have a a deep understanding of uh, the the high-tech gadgetry that that surrounds us these days. And therefore, um, the, the average person cannot or rather can no longer be a tinkerer. Um, And I I, I argue that that simply is not true, and in fact that uh, people who uh, tinker, uh, and this has been true historically in this country, do so uh, without a really clear purpose in mind, and that's why it works so well. And in fact, most of the, the great innovations in American history have typically come from people who thought they were trying to invent one thing and ended up solving quite a different problem. And so in the end, therefore, we as a society cannot necessarily systematize tinkering and innovation, but rather the best that we can do is create the most hospitable environments for uh, allowing tinkerers to do their thing And essentially be there at the ready for when they're, they're, uh, they're mature enough to be uh, developed into something else, whether it's a product or, uh, you know, an innovation or, or even just an idea that might, uh, transform our society. And, um, you know, I think as a, as a culture in, in recent decades, uh, for a variety of reasons, I think the main one is concerns over em- employment. Uh, Americans have artificially separated the arts and the sciences. You know, you have this idea either you're somebody who has a knack for uh, technology or math or, or, or you're somebody who is much more uh, humanities-oriented and therefore you might become a teacher or, uh, or, God forbid, a writer. Um and, uh, and, you know, we, we, and, and we, we've had that filter down into the way, uh, we direct, uh, young people into, uh, in, into higher education and into occupations. And I, I think that's a bit of a mistake. And it, most of the contemporary tinkers that I spoke to for my book, uh, argue quite to the contrary and say, you know, they, they've always been all about, uh, both the arts and the sciences. And so, you know, that, that sort of has given them the, uh, the framework for, uh, whatever it is they sought out to do and what they ultimately did. And, uh, I, I may be a little bit biased. I, I had a liberal arts education myself and was always somebody who kind of, uh, uh, you know, had, had an interest both, uh, in, in science and in, in arts and humanities, um, but I, I was really that was one of the astonishing things and, and and helped me really uh sharpen my focus and the book was was talking to some some pretty prominent people uh, you know some of whom are, are known in, in in science and technology fields who uh also are impassioned about about other types of um uh pursuits in the arts whether it's uh you know, crafts or, or cooking or, or music. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, a, a big, uh, driver underneath, uh, that sort of world view. And that is the fact that most tinkerers, uh, become accustomed to failure very early on. And they learn that they have to work through the failure and oftentimes many multiples of failures before they happen upon the thing that, that ultimately is successful for them or transforming. And um uh, part of that takes, uh, takes a, a kind of uh, uh, ability to, to, to see the big picture in the world. And um and, and that comes with having all different kinds of experiences. And I think that all of the, uh, the contemporary tinkers I talked to, uh, had those kind of formative experiences early on in their lives. And in that sense, uh, I realized that uh, the American tinkering spirit is in no way dead. It's just that uh, in certain areas, it's become uh, a little dormant or stunted just because of some other things that we in this country happen to do very well, such as uh, capitalism and and building large corporations. And uh, while corporations have have provided a lot of... uh, Environments for innovators over the decades, Uh they've also kind of quashed a lot of uh, innovation and tinkering just by doing what they do. And I talk a lot about that in the book about the contrast between um, capitalism and creativity, mm-hmm. and how, how you know how, if done right, some some really great things can happen, and if done wrong, um, it kind of snuffs out some really.
0: Great ideas. Mm -hmm. I think when most people consider tinkering, they think of guys and gals, if I can so speak, in their garages building things. So let's draw a very sharp distinction uh, just for illustrative purposes between um, tinkering and engineering. What is the difference between tinkering and engineering? Just stick to the realm of uh, physical technology. I, I don't want to imply that you can't tinker in organizations or in business or in sports or in lots of other things because you can. But let's just talk about technology for a second. What's the difference between engineering and tinkering?
1: Well, I mean, they're certainly interrelated. I mean, engineering in modern times has obviously become a, a, a profession that requires a, a particular sort of academic degree and uh learning you know depending what kind of engineering you're talking about um a particular set of of skills um tinkering can certainly be a part of that, and there there you know I've spoken to even in the course of doing a press for my book to a lot of um trained engineers who, in their spare time, do an awful lot of tinkering, and so there I guess is probably the the inflection point of of, of where they uh, depart because as an engineer uh, one may have in, in a work environment uh, some very specific problems to solve, whereas whatever that tinkerer does in their basement or garage is something that is just uh, their own curiosity kind of guides and one of the things I also highlight is is the kind of personal passion that has always driven uh uh, pure tinkerers, uh, to to the point that um, you know they they wade into stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I think we we forget when there's so many newfangled new gadgets that that we experience these days that we forget that that everything that is new is built out of something old. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, and the the actually the economist Paul Romer, I quote in a book, talks about this a fair bit about how, uh, you know, tinkering is really just taking what's around you in the world and reassembling it mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a way that, that seems novel or, or hasn't been done quite that way before. And um, it, uh, there's one great analogy of, of course, uh, you know, semiconductors are really just bits of sand <laughs> assembled in a certain mm-hmm. way uh, that that uh, creates new meaning. So, Nothing, nothing is new, and everything is old. But um, uh, you know, within that, with with that knowledge, come can come an awful lot of uh, uh, innovation. Nonetheless, so mm-hmm. I, I think that. Um, well, I mean, I can go into some examples. If, if from, sure,
0: from the go ahead. In
1: the book, um, one story I like from the book is, uh, I mean, obviously Thomas Edison is uh, probably the, the the world's best known inventor. And certainly Thomas Edison was a tinkerer. You know, the, the, the famous image of, of Thomas Edison, which was, was kind of, um, enhanced even during his lifetime by the press of being, you know, the wizard of Menlo Park, uh, the great man in his laboratory with his teams of assistants. And he would come up with some, uh, you know, great, uh, theoretical solution to a problem. And then all his employees would, would toil for hours and hours and night after night, trying to figure out just the right combination of of uh parts and and elements to put together to make you know a better light bulb or whatever whatever was was at hand but um, I tell the story in the book of uh, his uh development of the first phonograph and how Edison, even though he was already very successful uh Could never envision, for many years, the, uh, phonograph as anything but an office machine. He envisioned it as a uh, dictation machine that would be, uh, very useful in office situations. Even after, uh, you know, some, some music had been recorded, uh, he, he couldn't imagine that people would buy these things (laughs) as entertainment devices. Mm -hmm. And, he struggled with this for decades and it it impacted a lot of his uh, you know what the way he was trying to uh, innovate in, in with the phonograph and how it developed um and in fact in the end uh, you know uh, other companies one in fact uh, that included Alexander Graham Bell as as a partner um ultimately uh, developed the the phonograph that that we we know in the modern sense uh you know as one that plays flat uh, discs i mean obviously now we don't have those anymore but um you know for anybody who can remember uh, vinyl albums i mean it, 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 that was not something that edison ever was really able to wrap his head around and in fact as a result never really was able to capitalize on his invention and so i guess i argue in the book that if Edison had so much trouble over so many years uh, trying to tinker and, and evolve, uh, you know, in, in, into what he was doing with the phonograph, then then certainly um, others shouldn't feel so badly about having trouble uh, with their own efforts. Uh, again, tinkering, genuine tinkering, I think, it takes time and it takes uh, persistence. And it takes, uh, uh, you know, a, a certain level of confidence and self-reliance mm-hmm. that, that that relates to, um, uh, to to coping
0: with failure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and multiple we'll, failures. We'll give some more examples in a second because you have a lot of them in the book and they're terrific. But before we go on, I want to hearken back to something that I mentioned in the pre-interview to you, and that is ambiguity. I told you I went to a corporation to work once, and I worked there, and they told me I had to have a comfort. With ambiguity it seems that's an important part of tinkering as well
1: absolutely I think that um, you know I I come up with a a number of examples of of, you know institutionalized tinkering from the latter part of the uh, the 20th century going into the early 21st century uh, and sort of how some of them uh, went right to a certain degree uh, but how many of them ultimately went wrong. Uh, you know, one of the best examples, I think, is the Xerox Park mm-hmm. Corporation, which famously, uh, you know, was kind of this freewheeling environment out in uh, Palo Alto, California, um, where uh, there was a lot of uh, free time to come up with uh, new ideas, uh, potentially for the Xerox Corporation to capitalize on. And, of course, they famously came up with... Uh, it was probably the earliest personal computer, the Alto, um, which had a computer mouse and had, uh, uh, you know, windows, Windows-like, windows uh, uh, y- y- you know, structures on its interface. And, um, but the, the folks back in Stanford, Connecticut, where Xerox was based at the time, just didn't see any value in it. And it, it, it was only when uh, a, a young uh, entrepreneur named Steve Jobs came along and, uh demanded to to get a tour of their facility and see what was going on there that um that, that he was able to walk away with those those basic ideas and and develop the first apple computer mm-hmm. so you know it, it, it it's not just about um coming up with the great ideas especially in a corporate setting it's it's being able to have a, a a corporate structure that allows for that kind of ambiguity and that allows uh you know uh uh investment in in activities that may or may not result in uh revenue. Mm-hmm. Um I think in the decades since that era. Uh you know, despite the fact that obviously we've had a lot of uh innovative uh companies in this country and and all sorts of wonderful things have developed it it still seems like the big corporations have a lot of trouble with this concept and uh you know I've, one of the, the most best contemporary examples is uh Google ironically a very innovative corporation um that became known early on in its history for what it called uh its 20% time which um the basic idea was that they wanted employees to spend twenty percent of their time at work working on projects that had nothing to do with their job title and to come up with new ideas and to, to develop those ideas and in the early years it seemed to work quite well apparently uh... gmail and google news and um adsense one of their early ad programs came out of uh, the, that twenty percent time but uh, the word is in, in recent years as, the, you know, now obviously Google is a huge corporation and it's been harder and harder for them to justify to, both to shareholders and to, you know, in, in, internal managers, uh, uh, devoting that sort of free time to unclear, uh, purposes. So uh, in, in recent months, uh, word has come out that now apparently you need managerial approval for a lot of the, uh, the projects being developed in 20% time and uh you know they've had trouble retaining some some of their top talent uh because a lot of those folks are intrigued by smaller you know more faster moving companies that are, are doing the kinds of things that helped establish Google in the beginning so it's it's a problem that even at the most uh, innovative companies uh there continues to be a struggle uh, with that kind of ambiguity, even uh, you know, even as, it's, as as they build upon those original innovations.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned in the book, you also mentioned it in the interview, is that many things that we think of as innovations that come of tinkering, I would even say almost all of them, are the result of the recombination of things that already exist. Right. I, I just think that's totally true. Can you give some examples of that?
1: Um, well, you know, for, I, I guess one example would be, um, you, you want a contemporary example? Yeah, a contemporary you know? example would be great. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, one one good example, you know, let me start with a little story about uh, Dean Kamen, the uh, the inventor of this Segway transporter, yeah. which which uh, was an interesting uh Invention in itself, but, you know, it, uh, people now, you, you mostly see them around these days when people are giving sort of guided outdoor tours or I know that in, in large warehouses, I think at Amazon's warehouses, they use them to get quickly across a, a very large warehouse floor. Uh, but, you know, as, as Dean Kamen, who's a serial uh, tinkerer and inventor, um, imagined it originally, um, it was going to be the uh, uh, the vehicle of the future it uh you know the, the segway operates on a, a gyroscopic principle that he actually originally uh developed for a uh, walking wheelchair um that was supposed to allow people to uh who are wheelchair bound to climb stairs and uh you know uh cross the street and, and get up onto to high curbs and um uh, eventually evolved into this this mysterious device that that was sort of announced <laughs> with with a lot of excitement and I choke you know in the book that that unfortunately very quickly after it was introduced it became kind of a punchline uh you know there's a there's a sort of silly movie uh that had the comedian Kevin James in it called uh, Paul Blart Mall cop, yeah, and a running joke and it is that he he you know races around a mall on a Segway, and of course, how undignified and un un you know unserious that is, and you know so that that kind of thing became unfortunate and it became even more unfortunate after uh in a freak accident, the c e o of the company that was. Marking the Segway was killed after he accidentally drove a Segway off a cliff. Mm. So, which is a you know obviously a, a very horrific and sad accident, but but it didn't help the image of the uh, of the Segway. Uh, my point of that story, I guess, is that you know uh, in, in the end, I think people looked at, at Dean Kamen's invention as something that just was ridiculous but what's interesting now is that that technology i think and there've been a number of people who have pointed this out may may come into play even in in the future of electric cars for example mm-hmm. and um that you know he may have just been too early in his time and or you know that, that that technology you know it started out in these these walking wheelchairs and it went into the segway but you know the technology itself was pretty brilliant and um You know, I think that, you know, in talking to to Dean Kamen, uh, you know, he seems to understand that. I mean, what's interesting is he was kind of a a, a prodigy tinkerer himself and at a very young age uh, invented a a, a very uh, ingenious insulin pump that allowed, you know, freed uh, diabetics uh, uh, from being uh, tied into, uh, you know, especially if they were... uh, homebound being tied into having to get all these shots all the time it was able to self-regulate the the insulin Mm -hmm. and went on to invent all sorts of uh, medical pumps that were fairly revolutionary and actually that's where he made his original fortune um so you know there's this notion that that um I I think we have this image that uh, that uh, cool new inventions just come whole you know you know whole and you know, of a piece out of somebody's brain and, and, and there they are and, and, and they change the world. But the reality is, is that for most, uh, tinkerers, uh, these things get played with over time and all sorts of iterations over time. And, and ultimately, you know, it's hard to say sometimes where they're going to reach their fullest potential.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that in a corporate environment, this is only my opinion, but doesn't Apple basically live and die on this stuff because they take components and ideas from other places, recombine them, and then brilliantly kind of sell them to everybody i mean i uh, you know occasionally come out with a, a prototype of some sort that fails, but it seems to me that much of what the Apple Corporation makes is the result of uh the recombination and reengineering of things that already exist
1: I think that's true. I mean when you look at you know the products that have been so huge for them they they never Invented any of those things themselves. They kind of perfected them and, you know, I guess I, I do have a little bit of uh, tinkering lore about Steve Jobs in the book, but ultimately, you know, you could probably argue he was more of a, uh, you know, a g- design genius than a, uh, than a and, a, and a supreme marketer than a, uh, than a tinkerer per se. I mean, he certainly wasn't usually in there, uh, getting his hands dirty. That was, in the early days that was Steve Wozniak's job Mm -hmm. Um, but I think you're right and it it, it's funny because I have as somebody who started out as a PC guy early in 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 my career and and slowly and slowly have found more Apple devices in my home um, I I have mixed feelings about them I think I think Apple makes terrific devices and you know they're very forward-thinking in terms of how to take existing technologies and sort of make them um, almost more humanistic and and more intrinsic to how people actually uh... think and and operate but on the other hand apple in you know for example in the hacker community apple was kind of reviled because uh... so many of their devices are so difficult to get into Mm -hmm and that's what people who get excited about computers love to do. They like to get inside and you know, uh, most PCs you can switch out all all the components and you can really you can build your own. I mean there's there's that's kind of the most of the history of of uh, personal computers and yet most Apple devices come um pretty much sealed up and and hard to uh Hard to break into. I mean, certainly people have succeeded in doing it, but they've they've been very uh, hacker and tinker unfriendly mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, which is ironic considering their roots. But um, that's a whole other, a whole other concept. It, it is ironic
0: because if I know a little bit about the homebrew computer club, the history of the um, the organization out of which Apple emerged, and Wozniak and Jobs were there, they were buying components from computer makers and then putting them together a little bit like people in a previous generation would buy auto parts and right. trick out cars. Yep. They weren't inventing anything. They were they were putting them together in different ways. Right. And well, in really creative. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I think it's funny because I mean we obviously we live in a very individual oriented culture and we're very achievement oriented. And so there, there's always sort of this drive to kind of give credit where credit is due. When in fact you look at a lot of these in- environments that so many innovations have come out over, over the years, uh, you know, in a corporate setting and typically there are teams of people working on things. There may be real, uh, in- individual, um, uh, insights that, that are kind of provide breakthrough moments. But, um, you know, typically if you, you know, a, a fair number of contemporary tinkerers I spoke to said that their their preferred tinkering environment was kind of with, with a, you know, with a few uh, very trusted colleagues, you know, sort of just bouncing ideas off of each mm-hmm, other and mm-hmm. see- seeing what sticks, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because in the same corporation where I worked, um, they did a lot of brainstorming. And I had come from an academic world where that never happens. Never, yeah. ever. And especially in the humanities and social sciences, there's almost no collaboration whatsoever. Right. And I was a historian. We never collaborated with anybody. And right. so I was very skeptical of brainstorming when I first saw it and kind of dismissive of it. And then after a couple of months, I basically had to admit that it worked. Yeah. We, we came up with things that I just never, it never would have occurred to me that, that you could do this thing. And, uh, brainstorming actually, if it's structured correctly, really does produce new ideas. Um, and and I think it's precisely because you have a lot of people who have different experiences in the room. They can speak freely. They're not afraid of censure. And, uh, you know, they kind of have that comfort with ambiguity. They don't know exactly what they want yet, and they're willing to go forward with it. And, uh, you know, I found it actually kind of marvelously productive for new ideas in this particular corporate environment. And, and you know, the corporation is an inventive one, so they do right. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. How could a corporation, if it wanted to, build a culture in which tinkering was encouraged? I'm going to segue into a conversation of how academ- – this is impossible in academia. I'll just show my cards. Um, but how would a corporation do it?
1: Well, I think there are a number of ways that it could be done in a, in a corporate setting. Uh, none of them are particularly easy. Um, you know one way in which corporations more recently have, have tried to do this is sort of acknowledge that maybe innovation can't be forced fostered in the way that it might be at a startup in-house and so they'll partner with uh with uh smaller companies that uh are are very innovative and essentially try to uh you know, give them the sort of financial incentives they need, but but let it happen externally, and then kind of try to figure out ways to reap the benefits internally. I know Procter and Gamble has had a, a program for a while where where they uh, try to do that. Um, another way to do it, which is probably a little more radical, is to um, have have a company in which uh, um, employees are essentially allowed to own their innovations and uh you know the and the businesses where they are developed essentially um make arrangements where they have uh, first refusal of any uh, mm-hmm. resulting business uh i guess that's a little more provocative because most companies would argue that uh well if we're providing all the time and resources to 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 enable your you know your tinkering then we should own it you know where we we certainly want to make the most of it, but the reality is is that um that so rarely works, and in fact, there are all sorts of examples of of you know talented tinkerers who uh, uh you know confronted with that sort of proposition ultimately just leave their their companies and and start their own companies to to do what they want to do and so it, maybe it's not as outlandish as it sounds i mean i uh, found a recently i heard about a comp- small company in toronto a software development company that 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 does that again it's a small company it's not a large one but um you know these uh, there, there are probably some other ways to um you know with within corporations to create what really has to be a space of creative anarchy in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and i think when people hear that term anarchy they get kind of nervous mm-hmm. and certainly you know these days public corporations are probably the, the least likely places where that kind those kinds of environments are, are likely to crop up in part because obviously you have to answer to shareholders and you know you quarterly earnings reports and you know, the, the, this kind of activity just doesn't fit in very well, mm-hmm. especially if you're investing any sort of meaningful amount of uh, of, of capital
0: into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the time but, horizon for these places is very short. Once you right. go public, you really can't look – you can't say, for example, okay, we're going to buy all of IBM's patents for uh, $20 billion, and we're just right. going to look through them. We're going to see what's there. And companies right. do this pretty commonly. They do buy these stocks of patents just because they think there's something of value in there, but the shareholders – are not going to like that.
1: Right, yeah, and I think that, you know, what's changed in recent years, you know, I, I think there's... Uh, people know now, I mean, it's happened so much in the past few decades uh, that innovation and change have to happen. Um, it's just that... So so people, you know, uh, managers at large companies tend to say the right things these days, and there are lots of kinds of... Uh, you know, new structures that are being tried out, like, you know, they, some companies have hack days or or hackathons, you know, where they essentially... I, I joke that it's sort of the... Uh, you know the modern equivalent of what used to be known as the corporate retreat, where you right? Kind of the corporate get retreat, together yeah. and you know sing songs <laughs> together and throw around a medicine
0: ball yeah. and uh, kumbaya and, and trust falls.
1: <laughs> right, and you know uh, anybody who's ever been through one of those activities know how dreadful they can be. And you know, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, for, at a lot of large corporations, and this isn't to denigrate, you know, the employees of those companies. It's just that. A lot of the folks at those companies are there because these are large, stable companies where, you know, presumably if you do your job, then, you know, and you get your paycheck. And, uh, so this idea that they have to do this larger, uh, uh you know, extra uh, curricular kind of brainstorming is terrifying a lot of people. It's kind of like, well, I got enough deadlines already, and you gotta come up with some you know, idea that's going to make the country uh, make the company, you know, m- millions of dollars, you know, I, I, I don't have time for it. I got to get home to the kids, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it, there, there's something about uh, those sort of corporate environments. I think that that kind of runs counter to, to, to the types of people who typically, uh you know, are uh, these, these uh, transforming tinkerers. But I think that, you know, on one hand, everybody is not an entrepreneur. Everybody is not a, uh, a, a grand innovator. Uh, you know, there's certainly, uh, a small group of people, I think, in society, ultimately, who come up with some of the really big ideas. But, that doesn't mean that taking, uh, a, a, a tinkering approach to, to what you have at hand isn't a value. And I think that in a society like ours where, uh, you know, we're seeing so many rapid transformations in in almost every industry these days, it seems like, that, you know, I think that more and more people are realizing that that even at, at the level of large corporations, that there is no more business as, as usual. Mm-hmm. And so, um, y- you know, y- even if you're not the person who's going to come up with the next billion-dollar idea, um, there are ways to think about that kind of, Changing around all of the elements in your in your life, you know, or, or at least rearranging them, uh, can can be a value once in a
0: while. Mm-hmm. And and this does provide a nice segue into something you talk about near the end of the book, and something I know about from personal experience, and that is the educational system in the United States. You're right. I think that corporations have gotten the news about tinkers and innovation. It seems to me that people in the educational industry, if we can call it that, I'm sure they would hate it, have not gotten the news about it
1: well i think that you know there unfortunately over time you know there's become a uh, a very uh, test score oriented approach to education in this country you know uh, of course we're we're a, a very competitive culture and you know but uh, you know in the efforts to raise the the, the overall quality of education i think unfortunately We've become too focused on test scores, and you see so many teachers teaching to the test these days. And when uh, students apply to college, the focus is very much on test scores and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and grades. Which you know, I think that all of those play a role, but I think that, um, as we all know, when once you get into the the real world, all of those skills. Uh, don't really help that much.
0: No, they, they really um, don't. And I, I would tell my students this all the time when they would talk to me about grades. Grades on the college level are next to useless now because of grade inflation. And, right. you know, when you get into a corporation or you get into an actual business, it, it really the question is what can you do? Right. And, and if you can do something of value and something that I didn't expect I needed done, but you could do that, that's really something you would want to to have, because then you can, you, know, you can actually present something of value to your employer. I mean, I guess one of the things that occurs to me, and I wanted to hear what you thought about it, is that especially in college, uh, you, know, you mentioned that uh, there's a certain amount of um, uh, professionalization. It's kind of professional creep. So uh, it was the case that when you went to a big university, a land-grant university or something, you basically majored in the liberal arts. But now there are all these other tracks you can go into. You can go into engineering, you can go into business, pre-dentistry. That was right. one that I, I, I can't encountered. And, and liberal arts, I think, suffers there. Uh, it, could you talk a little bit about the result of that, or what do you think about that?
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, I, I understand where some of it comes from. I mean, we've been through a very um, frightening economic crisis um, that, you know, we're still kind of coming out of. And the cost of higher education has, has skyrocketed to, to, you know, to these astronomical levels. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk in, in recent years about the, uh, you know, what is the value of a college education? And, you know, some experts will say, well, you better know what your end goal is, i.e. what job you're going to get with this education before you even begin it, you know, and what is the return on investment on that that tuition? And... Um, You know, I understand that perspective. I I don't happen to agree with it. I think that um, it's sort of answering the wrong question in a weird way. I understand that people are concerned about employment, and certainly the job market these days is very challenging. But even the the presumption that, that you would know as a student beginning college, what it is, never mind what it is you want to do, in your career but the idea that that actually is what you will do and that you will do that the rest of your life the rest of your working life is is sort of becoming an an erroneous concept because of course these days you know it's not like most people get a job with a, a corporation work for that corporation for 35 years and retire that that's just not happening as much anymore Typically, people are are changing careers, you know, once, twice, uh, many more times than that. And, you know, so the idea that you would have this particular skill, and again, it's not to take away from the value of some of those skills. I would never recommend somebody who wanted to be a doctor to tinker their way <laughs> into, into, into that field. You know, I think you should probably go to medical school. Yeah. Um, you know, not to say that you couldn't be an innovator on the other end of that once, once certain things are in place, but, um, you know, I, I think the point is, is to sort of, and again, I may be a little biased because I am a project of a liberal arts education, um, you know you you kind of have to have a good sense of what's out there and what's going on in the world to to properly make those decisions and you know one of the, one of the the strongest tools I think the United States still has in in the uh the world of innovation is we have a a very superb uh graduate uh you, you know graduate education system in place i think that you know, you still see uh, many top students from around the world coming to the United States for their graduate education. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that is evidence that, you know, there 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 is something that we do get right at that top level uh, and, and understanding some of the things, the, the pieces that need to go into that type of education. One intriguing thing that I mention in the book is... Uh, uh, an institute that was uh, founded at Stanford University in, in 2005 um, that called the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design. And they have a non-degree program there known as the D School. And the basic idea is to teach students from all of the uh, graduate schools at Stanford how to embrace ambiguity, experimentation, and the possibility of failure. And they have all different kinds of activities that they actually require, I believe, students from some of the various graduate schools to participate in to essentially unlearn a lot of that test taking mentality that got them to Stanford Mm -hmm. in the first place Mm -hmm. with this with this, you know, clear belief that, uh, you know, the world is different now. And if we want to stay competitive worldwide, you, you know, it's just it's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being nimble and, and open to change and, and ready for failure and, um, you know, ready to kind of uh, push on to the next thing. Uh, the ironic thing about that is I think those are sort of core American principles that kind of got us where we, where we you know, in, it got us to be the big nation that we ultimately uh, have become.
0: Mm-hmm. You quote Tocqueville in the book, and um, I will read pretty much any book that quotes Tocqueville. <laughs> I have to tell you, that is the mark of a good book. keep that in mind in the future. That is the mark of a good book. If you're writing about the United States and you don't quote Tocqueville, well, you really have made a mistake. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. So where do you see all this headed? I mean, do you think that there is a great future for tinkers in America, or um, are you going to make some dire predictions? Or
1: um, I'm pretty upbeat about it, and, and I would say the main reason is because of some things that have been going on in the past few years that really are quite remarkable. One of the things is the uh, the the growing popularity of the uh, maker fairs. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these. I haven't
0: there's... been to one, but I know about them, and I love the idea.
1: Yeah, they're terrific. I I just went to a really large one in in, the, in New York City uh, a few months back, and uh, took the whole family, and we we had a blast. I and mean, just hundreds and hundreds of booths, uh, some of which were sci- you know uh, inhabited by scientists or technologists or uh artists craftspeople musicians uh just an astonishing array of activities and um you know some people had finished products they were trying to market others weren't quite sure what they were doing uh, i remember talking to a guy who had come up with this this uh, technology essentially what he would do is he would take old manual typewriters and uh, he had a whole interface that he put together where he could hook them up to a uh to an iMac, and so you could type on an old fashioned <laughs> manual keyboard and, it, and use, it, use it as your keyboard for the computer. I just loved it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it, what it, uh, uh, you know, what its ultimate purpose was, other than just as a novelty. But it, 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 it kind of. It 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 was a perfect it was the epitome to me of uh, of kind of where tinkering can lead you mm-hmm. sometimes just to these sort of you know uh, kind of punchlines these existential punchlines and um, I, I but there were all sorts of great things there and one of the things that I I mean I have young kids I have a ten year old and a seven year old and and you know you take kids to an event like this and you don't need to explain to them what to do mm-hmm. they just walk up to a table and start. Taking something apart or putting it back together, then, or asking questions about it, and you realize that you know tinkering is something that's innate. Um, I think kids do it automatically. The the trick is, is how in our society do we foster, uh, you know, foster that tinkering and 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 encourage it, and not squash that impulse, which I think we inadvertently do with a lot of our you know of what we do in education sometimes. Uh, you know, I also look to some other things like there are these these um, uh, innovation engines or, or companies online, like Kickstarter mm-hmm. is probably the most prominent one, where essentially people are crowdsourcing their 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 tinkering projects. So you, you know, you you put a lot you put a um, uh, your idea online on the Kickstarter site, and then uh, p- other people can actually donate small. You, you, you know, you you put a, uh, uh, amount of money up there that you're trying to raise to, to finish your project. And then people kind of weigh in and they can comment on your project. They can donate small amounts of money. And, w- you know, once you get to the point where you reach that amount that you've requested, then you can actually go forward with your project. And, um, I think that that's, uh, I love that kind of idea and there are, there are certainly some other companies out there doing it as well. Um, what I love about it is it sort of ties in the whole history of tinkering and American tinkering, but it sort of adds an element that wasn't even possible to add, you know, just a decade ago or so where you can get virtual strangers to kind of walk by and say, Oh, well that's interesting, but have you thought about this? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and not only that, but you get the pure power of the marketplace. You get people who, who, are willing to put up a little bit of their own money for for usually what it is is a, a small, you know, token of appreciation or if it's something if it's an art project, it, you know, you might for example, some people have funded uh, you know, uh music albums that they wanted to record and every uh contributor will get a, a free copy of the album when it's done. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there are all sorts of uh innovative ways to structure the financing, but I think that um, when I see things like that, I realize, you know, this stuff is all alive, and we're seeing the the the, the green shoots of a whole new generation is tinkering. And, in fact, some of those fears may, uh, may be premature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have to say this. When I was a kid, my favorite toy was the Tinker toy. And they're yeah. still around. I know my son plays with them. So yeah. and I just used to love to build things. I didn't exactly know what they were, but I would build them and I'd say, "Look at this, Mom." And she's like, "What is that?" I said, "I don't know. But it's kind of right. cool, isn't it? You know, look at turns."
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and look, they, even Legos are more, yeah. more popular than ever and uh um yeah, Leg- Legos have sports. gotten yeah. Legos
0: have gotten bizarre. I mean, they're bizarrely complicated now. I mean, they
1: Yeah, they are. Well, mar- there's you know, some people will criticize the fact that they've gone towards these very structured kits where you're supposed yeah. to build a specific thing, but you know, I think I think the basic, uh, you, you know, the prevalence of them. The reality is, I, I know from my own uh, family experience that typically you'll have a, a, a playroom just uh, with a whole layer of <laughs> Legos oh, sprawled yeah, across oh, it, yeah. and eventually some some yeah. sort of device or, or vehicle or something comes out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no you should come to my house. It's it's it's, it's exactly what it is. So, right. well, I'm glad to hear you're optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about it too. As I told you in the pre-interview, the New Books Network, uh on which this show, uh New Books and Big Ideas uh is hosted, uh was a kind of tinkering project of mine. I I uh was working in this corporation and I had this idea that I could interview smart people with uh, good books and that people would listen to the podcast and the publishers would get on board and and that I could figure out how to record things and record the audio and that kind of thing and edit it and uh lo and behold, it worked. And we're even on Kickstarter. We haven't been Kickstarted yet, so if anybody's listening that wants to Kickstart us, we think, I think that would be great, but yeah. I can tell you, from my perspective, my tinkering project, which is the New Books Network and those who work on it, there are about 50 of us, we already consider it a success. I mean, we haven't made any money. It costs us money, but you know, we reach uh, a lot of people with these interviews. People like you, Alec, and uh, and so in a certain weird way, you know, the project itself was its own reward. I don't need to be yeah, paid well, I to think, do it. I think that's important. You know, I, there's something about uh, the American tinkering in
1: particular that that is about self-actuation and self self-reliance. Yeah, um, and there there is a real uh, power and confidence that comes out of. Uh, having an idea in your head and then realizing it, and um, you know, and that's quite apart from any uh, uh, financial reward or anything. Yeah. I think that um, you know, I, I know as a book author, I have the same sort oh, of yeah. uh, same same sort of impulses. So it's, it's
0: yeah, yeah. It's, no, that's uh, exactly right. And and I should also say that it fits the pattern because I had a number of ideas for web projects that would disseminate serious ideas, and um, well, they failed. But I'll tell you what, in every single one of them. I learned a lot, and they all went into the New Books Network. Everything I learned went into the New Books Network. And if you want to hear something that's kind of a quasi-failure, you should listen to some of my early interviews on New Books and History a few years ago, (laughs) before I knew what I was doing. Um, But I I think the audience has been very gracious in continuing to listen to me, and I think the audience will will be gracious uh, as well in buying your book. We've been talking with – Alec Foge about his book The Tinkerers The Amateurs, DIYers and Inventors Who Make America Great. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show today. Marshall, thanks for having me. It was, oh. it was a real pleasure. Alright, great. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.